Welcome to the WattPod, a journey into the world of the most exciting clean tech startups, powering the energy transition and our carbon-free future. We will learn about the journeys of these companies and their founders, their backgrounds, the hurdles they face, those they have overcome, as well as the breakthrough innovations they are delivering. We will also explore what investors and innovators are looking for as we head towards a cleaner, more distributed, more flexible energy system. What innovations and investments are required to ensure access to cheap, reliable, and responsible energy? Our guests bring a range of expertise and insights that will help us understand what developments are taking place. I look forward to our discussions with them and this journey with you. Today, we welcome Rob Bartrop, Chief Revenue Officer at Source Global. Source's hydro panel technology uses abundant renewable energy and moisture readily available in the air to produce safe, clean drinking water. Rob, welcome to the WattPod. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And a long time since our days together playing um, playing touch football in Singapore. It has been, mate. It's been probably six years or so now since we were doing that. Now, uh, now I'm chasing around little kids and uh, in a different industry in a different part of the world here in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. Really keen to learn more about you and, and your journey and um, how you ended up working with Source. Um, but first, I, I thought we might jump in and just understand the problem that Source is actually trying to solve. Sure. So we uh, at Source are looking at the problem of drinking water. Um, it's primarily manif- manifested by um, a large kind of population in the world, over 2 billion people who don't have clean water to drink where they live. Um, and that really manifests itself in two ways. One is in the, the developing markets. We see, um, you know, a lot of people spending time trying to find clean water. So we've got every day women and girls spending 200 million hours collecting water for their families. Uh, we've got huge limitations on health and economic development, climate resilience, um, really brought about by the inaccessibility of, of very centralised urban water supply methods to um, decentralised places like farms and villages and mountains and islands. Um, and then the, the current private sector solution for that is bottled water. We, we go through half a trillion single-use plastic bottles every year. Um, and so the default place for people to get clean water um, when it's not in the tap is through you know, a plastic bottle, which is expensive. It's really bad for the environment. And it's also very carbon intensive. So um, we've got those kind of dual problems really going everywhere from you know, very kind of evolved um, you know, high quality of living cities to very remote, vulnerable places and really driven by the limitations of the current water supply networks to get clean water to, to all the people that need it. You've thrown some really big numbers there just showing, you know, the significance of this problem. How is that developing over time as well? Like, you know, obviously Source has, has got a, 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 a big problem that it's trying to solve here. How are those numbers changing over time? Are you seeing um, more access to centralized water facilities as development occurs in many countries? Or is this decentralization likely to continue to occur going forward? Yeah, so the, the first thing to note is that the, the urban supply methods have worked really well, really since the Roman era, right? So finding clean water in lakes and 
and rivers and then getting that to people in big cities is a pretty well-proven and well-managed process in, in big cities around the world. Um, the problems that I was highlighting are really limitations of extending that infrastructure to more decentralized remote populations around the world. Um, and for that reason, uh, that problem, the, the, the increasing access to people of pipes is not really improving um, because the technologies aren't there to enable it. So it's a technical gap. Um, what's funny is we've seen in other industries like in renewable energy, you know, villages and remote households all over the world now have solar panels that give them electricity. Um, they're also getting cell phone signals. So the sort of communications and information poverty has been eradicated by people being able to access a decentralized network through a, through a mobile telephone where they couldn't access previously a, a, a landline. Um, and then water is really um, has not progressed past that point. And so uh, unfortunately, the problem is not getting better. Um, the problems I'm describing are also infrastructure problems. They're about you know, where you can get pipes. Um, there's also a climate problem or a resource problem overlaid onto that. So not only just about having pipes, but also having security of water to run through the pipes. And as we see changing climates and prolonged um, dry period or aridification around the world, we're seeing um, more and more stress and actually kind of increasing numbers of, of populations. And in cases, like, um, in cases like Cape Town in South Africa, we've seen entire kind of urban centers potentially lose um, access to clean water because of drought. What you're describing is very much, say, a developing market issue with you know, lack of access to pipes, et cetera. Is, is that the target market um, or do you actually operate in many different countries as well? So we're in more than 50 countries, um, kind of ranging the, the span of um, development status. What I would say is um, the reaction is often that it's a developing market problem. Uh, that often overlooks where we see a place like Australia, which has great drinking water in big cities, still has more than 600,000 people that don't have pipes in their home. And they're very decentralized. They're people on farms, on bore water. They're people in you know, Aboriginal homelands and, and smaller communities that aren't able to drink the water at their house and, and rely on bottled water. Um, and we see the same thing in America. We've got 60 million Americans on, on well water. Um, and so we have and, and several million Americans with no pipes at all. And so although there is great progress in big cities, the, the decentralized challenges of water are definitely, you know, are definitely present around the world. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, being able to, to address problems in, in both those markets, I think, makes source quite unique and the technology is developed quite unique as well. Um, when you're talking about those people that are that are say decentralized off grid don't have access to, to clean water they're relying today on rainwater aquifers bores etc is is that correct exactly so they they they're related they're reliant on on water that hasn't been treated so rainwater and and bore water um, and so often that water is is useful I, I would say always that water is useful um, and things like, you know, gardens, showers, toilets, where we see more challenges is to get that water to a quality that is um, reliable and, and clean enough to drink. And that often takes some sort of treatment given the um, high kind of prevalence of, of heavy metals in, in bore water or, or well water, um, and also the difficulties kind of maintaining cleanliness of, of rainwater. So our technology really zones in on the drinking water component for, for cooking and drinking. 
Um, so to give you an example, my my house of four has has um, you know our our source technology for drinking water, and then we use water from the the local supplier for showers and toilets and things like that. So they complement each other, um, which is which is one of the kind of steps towards a more kind of resilient and uh, and decentralized water supply network. And you mentioned climate change and adaptation there earlier as well. How is that looking for you? Are you seeing an increased need for sources technology? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think the the vulnerability of remote people um, has been has been intensified. So we do a lot in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, in North Africa, um, the Pacific Islands, places where the the reality of climate change is um, you know an everyday consideration. Uh, we've also seen um, a lot of populations that are shifting. So obviously things like conflict, things like drought. Um, things like um, you know political instability has caused large population shifts. So when you look at things like refugee camps, informal settlements, uh, we do a lot of water infrastructure in places where where long term infrastructure you know was never contemplated. And and just going down that route a little bit more, could you describe you know typical customers for? for you um you know talked a little bit about the countries the use cases we've talked about households who's actually buying um this technology sure so people um that that fit into the the categories where where they're not happy with their water situation so our business um is pretty much split into two on our government and community side we work with all levels of government um and and a number of global NGOs to help extend supply for people that don't have it. Uh, and so people looking looking for um, a set of outcomes. So for example, we've done thousands of homes in Australia with the Aboriginal housing office of people who weren't drinking tap water, but are now saving money, drinking less high sugar drinks and feeling more resilient and secure in their, their day-to-day lives. Um, we've done works with departments of education in, in several states uh, where they were trucking bottled water to schools in remote areas and we're now providing clean drinking water at those schools um, under a service basis saving money saving plastic increasing resilience um, and then and then we've also worked with you know development banks and things like that in, in different countries extending that on the community side um, on the the business side we really work with businesses to um, save money and save plastic. So we offer a service model where we sell water to businesses um, and we do it where they need water in remote places. So for example, we just did a, um, a deal with a mining company in Queensland in Australia where um, they were trucking in water for their drinking water and we can, and, and they were using a lot of bottled water. And so we can make water on site for them now for people to drink. Uh, we've done the same thing with large agricultural um, kind of crop picking um, businesses in California. We've done the same thing with five-star hotels, um, shifting away from plastic into a sort of in-room glass circular model. So working working with businesses to save money, save plastic, um, and obviously, you know, lots of applications in commercial real estate, you know, residential real estate, things like that as well. That's really interesting to learn. So when you're talking about doing it at a, you know, the, the service level, you're selling water basically as a service. Is that right? So do you do a cost per litre agreement or something? Exactly. So it's, it's very much modelled on the, the same as a solar PPA where 
you know, we'll invest in the infrastructure and the, the customer or user will, will pay for the, the fixed price per litre. Um, and that is, you know, usually a significant discount to a, a water delivery service or, or bottled water um, and obviously doesn't have any <clears throat> upfront costs related to it. And so uh, we've even found, you know, we get a lot of interest in, in big urban areas. If you go to most cities in the world outside of uh, the United States or Australia or certain parts of Europe, nobody drinks tap water. So if you go to Mumbai or Beijing or, um, or most Mexico City, you're seeing you're seeing two different types of water supply, one that people actually drink and one that they use for toilets and showers and washing cars and things like that. And so um, many of those households, none of of those households or businesses like plastic and they don't like the carbon, they don't like the feeling of lifting up a a 20 litre container of water on top of a water cooler, but they want something that they trust, that's safe and tastes nice. Um, and so we're able to offer all of the benefits that that those um, bottled water companies provide, but just do it in a lot more convenient and sustainable way that it happens to be a lot cheaper as well. That's really clear. So on a cost per litre basis, whether you finance it or they finance it themselves, it's generally cheaper than trucking in bottled water in, in you know, single serve plastic. That's exactly. Right. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably less than one-tenth of the cost of single-serve plastic and and less than half the cost of a uh, like a Neverfail or a Culligan's kind of 20-liter um, delivery service. Wow. Wow, that's, I mean, that's incredible. And what about, you'd obviously be familiar with LCOEs, you know, coming from your background, but yep. what what about in, in terms of um, comparing it versus, say, the infrastructure that requires getting drinking water to people? Now, whether that's someone that's, on a farm with water tanks um, or a bore that they're drilling, uh, you know, to drill a bore is tens, tens of thousands of dollars here in, in Australia. So how does yep. that sort of cost stack up? And um, and how, how are you able to help continue decentralization? You know, those pipes and networks of pipes take a lot to maintain, um, particularly the cleanliness to the level that you need to be able to provide drinking water. How are you able to compete with that sort of, infrastructure as well yeah so the first comment i'd make is people who live in big cities and enjoy drinking tap water you know definitely don't need our technology so when we look at the two billion people in the world who have, have water stress we don't we don't include people that live in big cities um, when you talk about decentralized people um, then you've either got people drinking bottled water or water delivery service which a lot of people in rural and remote parts of australia and the, and the world generally do um, when you're looking at, at creating new infrastructure, anywhere that's any farm or any kind of remote town or village, uh, it's typically not a good um, value proposition to extend pipelines long distances to serve new homes. So we see um, the decentralized option as pretty much being what you're describing. It would be um, a, a source system. So our solution for, for drinking water, and it would be um, a bulk water solution for non-drinking purposes. So a rainwater tank is a great example of that where you've got sufficient rain. Um, a bore or, or a well is a great example of that where, where you've got groundwater. Um, and otherwise, you know, you're hustling. In some places, you're, you're using really efficiently grey water systems and things like that to look for, for using water most, multiple times. Um, and so, yeah, so our drinking water solution essentially complements other bulk water solutions um, which can can meet the rest of the household needs. Really interesting. 
I wanted to jump across to the tech a little bit more. I mean, I, I find yeah. it so impressive that you've married these two technologies and created this entirely new use case. I'm also really interested to understand things like, you know, requirements for access to the sun, moisture content in the air, and how that may affect the, the productivity essentially of, of the system. Sure. So to, to at the high level, so I mentioned the limitations with with um, the traditional kind of drinking water supply. You know, we think that the key limitation there is that they're relying on finding clean water in a in a lake or an aquifer and then trying to transport it. So it's essentially a transmission challenge to put it in, in or a distribution challenge to put it in energy terms. Uh, what we did is locate a, an enormous body of clean water in the atmosphere. So there's there's more than six times the fresh water in all the, the world's rivers and lakes present in the atmosphere at any time. And so we've developed a product we call Source, which is a hydro panel that is able to harvest water from the atmosphere using just sunlight and air as the only input. So it's completely off-grid system. Um, and that is able to produce drinking water where you need it. So we, we produce water at the point of consumption. Um, you know, which is fundamentally different to, to other types of, of water supply. Um, the way the technology works is really built around two concepts. The first is a, an advanced material. So we call it a, it's called a hygroscopic material, which is really efficient at sucking water from the air. Um, the best analogy would be to you look at, say, the way that sugar will clump when you leave the lid off a sugar bowl. Uh, it is a, um, is passively absorbing water in the air and clumping. We've got a material that's really good at that. Um, even in, in places like where I am in, in the desert in the US where it's sub 10% humidity, still able to absorb a lot of water into material. We then use renewable energy um, from the heat of the sun to actually to, to drive thermal energy. So we create hot air from, from the air and then we run that hot air into a condenser and we're able to condense the drinking water from the material um, through the difference between hot air and the ambient air. And so it's not an electric powered process. It's actually a, a thermal or a heat driven process. And that works the same way that steam in a shower will condense on a wall, not because the wall's cold, but because the steam's hot. So through those two concepts, the material science and the thermal energy were able to produce what is distilled water um, into a reservoir. And that collects in a 30 liter container in our reservoir. And then we add in minerals, calcium, magnesium to that, which give it a, a high pH and a really palatable taste profile, which is important to, to people who like, you know, fresh tasting water. Um, and that process is now, as I said, it's, it's in more than 50 countries. Um, we, do, we do see some um, variance in production, but there's a lot of offsets. So where, where it's really dry and sunny, we get a lot of air through the system. And so the system works really well, but there's, there's less water to absorb. Um, and in a really humid climate, you're getting less solar resource, but you're getting more water in the air because there's higher humidity. And so we actually see a bit of a balancing between those climates. And so we see fairly consistent production, maybe biased a little bit towards kind of um, sunny and, and humid places like in California versus really dry or really rainy places. But uh, look, we've got systems in as uh, in remoter places as Scotland and deserts all over the world and coastal locations in Ireland. And we've seen pretty consistent uh, year round production uh, in a variety of landscapes. And I've actually um, tried the source uh, product. Oh, you have? 
Yeah, because yeah. you've got um, you've got some of the panels outside um, the the tennis club in Bukatima yep. in Singapore. In Singapore, yep. So I used yep. to um, used to top up my water bottle there, and I take my kids to play tennis. Yeah, yeah. So well, I can that's, definitely, that's I can a great thing about... for the for the product. Yeah, that's that's the great thing about it. I've got you know, I fill up my water bottle, my kids do every morning, and then we go to to villages in India, and we go to hotels in in the Middle East and we go to schools in Australia and we're all drinking exactly the same water. Um, and I often think the amount of, you know, times that an NGO will fundraise for a project to install, you know, a certain type of solution like a well in a foreign country and and the the uh, concept of that water is good enough for those people, but I like my water to taste like this. Uh, it's kind of nice that we've got a more kind of ubiquitous concept of drinking water and we can we can share that in a whole range of uh, countries and applications and the other thing is is you know your technology is modular and scalable right so you know as you scale i imagine it would come down the cost curve going forward as well which means that it can apply in more situations very much so so we're, look we're seeing a lot of um, value in all the markets are active in at the moment as it is and then we have a a, a ambitious um, ambitious kind of roadmap to bring that right down to you know a, a extremely low cost form of water service for for very large you know portions of the world, um, and we also yeah we see that through scale we see that through continuing to evolve and invest in the technology the the hydro panels we have now can be installed in about um, ten to fifteen minutes uh, when I joined the company you know six or seven years ago it was it was a sort of a half day process. Uh, they're now producing probably three times as much water per panel as they were five or six years ago. So we're getting a lot of, and they're a lot you know, cheaper and, and uh, more durable. So the, the product has evolved a lot. The um, water profile has evolved a lot, our understanding of the market. And I think the recognition within water as an industry that we need to adopt more innovative approaches um, if, if we're going to, uh, if we're going to kind of solve some of these problems. Because as I said at the start, these the water situation is getting worse, not better. And we need innovation, collaboration, and decentralization to get to a, a more optimized water supply system that, that works for, uh, for all the people in the world. And just touching on that and something that you, you um, spoke about at the beginning, you know, I think you mentioned <clears throat> that 200 million hours collecting water for, for, for young girls, for women, et cetera. I mean, what really hits me is the number of UN SDGs that Source um, is nailing here. You know, is there anything that you want to add in that space as well? Maybe, maybe even like something that you've seen, a, a case study or an example that sort of stands out for you. Yeah, I think I think the um, the biggest learning that I've had in in the last sort of seven years or so working in this is that that it's not about our technology and it's not about whether the water's clean. It's really about the, the outcomes that, that that lack of water is, is driving. So, you know, people have a, a much better ways to spend their time than looking for water. Um, and what we see is that the fundamental gaps are created of people who don't have clean water at their home. So if you look at, you know, the fact that an indigenous child in Australia is more than five times more likely to drink a high sugar drink uh, before you know the age of four 
then that's primarily driven by the fact that people in the households don't trust the water or don't have a clean sense of water. And so if you look at things that happen along the health path, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, there's a very straight line towards, you know, diet and, and water. And I think the gaps between Indigenous, non-Indigenous, uh, male, female, rural, urban, um, in education, economic development, life expectancy, stem from these foundational things. You know, does that person have the same opportunity from day one? And, you know, we see populations that, that are limited because they don't, they, don't, they don't have the time to take advantage of the opportunity because they're having to go and, and worry about where to get water from. And so I've just seen that the impacts on a personal level, you know, there's, there's thousands of communities we've seen with that challenge. Um, we've seen in places of crisis, you know, we've seen, we've done some great projects with Canva um, in, in uh, Cobago after the bushfires um, in 2019 in Australia. Uh, we did a lot of work with the Olympian Paddy Mills with Indigenous communities in Australia. Uh, we've done work more recently with flood ravaged communities in northern New South Wales. I think we're still trucking clean drinking water to the Nimbin uh, Central School in Nimbin um, as an alternative to plastic bottles. So we've seen a lot of, uh, unfortunately, crisis driving a lot of adoption because these issues are kind of um, becoming more conscious for for regulators and stakeholders as they as they look at the the impacts of not having clean water uh, it's been so good to learn so much about source what i want to dive into now a little bit about you rob um so you had a background in solar you worked for first solar for eight years um you were leading business development in that space as well before moving across to source i'd love to learn a little bit more about your journey and what took you away from, say, the energy transition to this really great purpose that you're working on at the moment? Sure. So I um, actually, yeah, my original background was in finance and law, and then I sort of fell into renewable energy um, and really had a, um, a extremely enjoyable time at eight years in First Solar. It, it started off as a, uh, as a in a strategy role in New York and, and ended up, you know, building the first three or four large-scale utility scale solar projects in Australia, um, you know, several hundred megawatts and then kind of evolved into to living in, in Singapore and working on projects in, in China and Malaysia and Thailand and, and places like that. Um, I think, and, and that was a, a wonderful journey and there's parts of my job which are very similar about, about bringing disruption. In fact, a lot of the discussions that I have now uh, remind me of the discussions we were having in 2008, 2009 with utility companies who didn't quite understand that that you know how solar could work if the sun didn't shine at night and and things like that and didn't really know how to value the the carbon and climate benefits and so obviously over the last 15 years or so we've seen a aggressive adoption and recognition that that things need to improve and that externalities need to be valued better and the policies and the kind of shareholder and investor environment really kind of drove change there, um, you know, which is obviously now, now well and truly kind of manifested. I think, um, so, so in some ways I've really enjoyed the trip back to that where we're on the front line of innovation and we're not really competing or displacing water utilities, but really partnering with people in the world who are trying to extend service and improve outcomes to people who don't. Um, and I've often said, you know, in the, in the uh, kind of business context, you know, the, the way that plastic water is not 
a good option. Like we cannot be content that a pallet of bottled water is like the best way to get clean water anytime that we can't, we can't find a tap. And so um, I think the, the acceptance that, that plastic's a problem, the acceptance that people deserve clean water, the acceptance that climate's getting worse and we're able to sort of plug into core themes that I think are broadly accepted and less political than where energy was 15 years ago and then apply a lot of the same lessons that or models, you know, like the, the PPA that can be reapplied in a, in a water sense. Um, and we also, you know, benefit a lot from what's happened in the developing world with the way that mobile phones have rapidly accelerated, you know, the banking system and the credit system, the way that kind of microfinance and decentralized um, services like in, in communications, energy and, and, uh, and banking can really be applied in water as well. Um, and so, yeah, so that part of it I've enjoyed and obviously moving countries now living in the US, I'm still getting to, to travel to, you know, beautiful places and, and, um, and get to do some, some good projects in Australia as well. So very much enjoying the journey. Yeah, I think it's a great journey. And I mean, what an amazing opportunity to, to have such a great impact as well. So I know certainly talking to you through this process, I'm thinking about our place because for me, the decision to go fully off grid was a very easy one. It was a hundred grand to put poles and wires up to our, our property. So, you know, we just went hundred percent renewable, solar batteries off grid, might pair that with a bit of wind, you know, micro turbine or something in the future. But water now, having talked to you, you know, we were collecting rainwater. How can we improve that going forward? And so maybe we'll take that offline, but, you know, it certainly made me think if there's a, a different way we should be doing things as a decentralized household. No, absolutely. And, and look, the core theme is we've got business now where we get approached by a lot of people with a similar mindset. Their motivations are different. Some people it's, it's driven by the, return on investment or the willingness to sort of be the masters of their own domain, so to speak. Um, other places, um, it's really driven by fear, you know, fear of people in the family getting sick or fear of the water delivery truck not showing up. Um, and so, and you know, in the, the more vulnerable scenarios, it's really just about trying to give um, some of those people a level playing field to, as you say, to kind of look at, at the way that the different SDGs and kind of Maslow's hierarchy and kind of trying to get to more advanced outcomes than just, just finding clean water every day. So yeah, we, we are, um, people's water problems are definitely not uh, all the same. There's a kind of a, a mosaic of reasons why water is important to people. Um, but, um, but we're lucky enough to have a, a, a focus on the drinking water side that we think is applicable to, uh, to pretty large groups of uh, populations around the world. Great. We'll jump into what's up now. So this is just our, our wrap up for each episode where we ask three quick questions and get your rapid response. Um, so the first question I've got is, what would you recommend to someone looking to get involved in climate? I would recommend uh, finding finding something you're passionate about, um, finding a product or a, or a part of the climate movement that you believe in and you personally kind of resonate with, and then trying to surround yourself with with good people or good organisations that that are pursuing that that same goal. Uh, and so I think there there are a lot of parts of the the industry now that get involved in climate. We see some great work from within, so some big kind of uh, high emissions or high intensity companies where really starting to kind of pivot towards cleaner businesses. And so we see some really impactful roles bringing the, 
the the problem towards a solution. Uh, we see a lot of other um, uh, talented individuals thriving, you know, come up with new technologies, working on new ways to accelerate, um, you know, technologies, accelerate companies. And so I think there's a level of passion and enjoyment that, um, that, that people that, care about climate and have a skill set or able to you know apply it in more ways than ever before second question is what's your number one motivation my number one motivation is is actually is actually pretty clear because i drink the water that we that we consume every day so i think there's a there's a core level of equity which which comes from the recognition that for those of us like me that grew up in a big city, I grew up in Sydney. I got to about 25, 26 years of age before I really comprehended that that a lot of people in the world couldn't just turn on the tap and get, you know, great quality water essentially for free. Um, and so the last 15 or 20 years living overseas, living, traveling a lot into different countries, different segments, really appreciate how much how much privilege is involved in living in living in a place where clean water comes out of the tap um, and really how much, how foundational that is in, in my life. And so, you know, obviously with the, um, you know, other factors play into that, but, but I think that motivation is to be able to use technology to change people's lives for the better is, is extremely motivating. I also think that, you know, I'm not the only person and source isn't the only company that can do that. It's really a, a, um, an effort where all different types of personalities, all different types of companies, all different types of technologies need to work together to do that. And I think that's probably been my biggest observation of the last 15 years is the, the movement towards equity and towards progress is more of a collaborative movement than it was 15 or 20 years ago. And um, it's not a winner-takes-all game it's a it's a loser effects all game if we don't get it right you know society's going to be worse off as a result final question is what is your favorite brand that's not in your space all birds i think all birds do a really good job they're a uh, you know quasi australian company who i think have done a really good job making a good product that is uh has the right kind of ethical position the right value proposition and in a in a world of kind of fast fashion i think all birds has done really well in that space um so i admire all birds as a as a as a growth company and i notice on all birds products actually now they have all their carbon footprint for the packaging for the actual production for the transportation logistics and for the use as yeah. well which obviously is zero but yeah no absolutely yeah absolutely um i think i might have to correct you slightly there because like many great things um that come out of new zealand australians tend to claim them but i i think they might actually be from i new think zealand, i know <laughs> I, so I said i said quasi australian so yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's uh <laughs> we'll take it point. Yeah. yeah great yeah hey rob so good to chat to you great to catch up as well i think that what you're doing at source personally is just um incredible uh I can imagine it's really motivating for you. I think you're making a massive difference and, and wish you all the best. Mitch, I very much appreciate you having me. Um, hope, uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, Rob. No worries.